Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. Coming up today, I'm talking to specialist medical accountant Lawrence Slavin, who's the senior partner at Ramsey Brown Chartered Accountants. Lawrence has over 30 years of experience working with GP practices and their finance. In this conversation, we're talking about how rising inflation has affected practices, the financial implications of this year's GP contract, and why the government's plan to get high-earning GPs to publicly declare their income is a really bad idea. We also talk about some of the problems GPs are facing with pensions, including some of the challenges dealing with primary care support England. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. So I'm delighted to be joined now by Lawrence Slavin, the senior partner at Ramsey Brown Chartered Accountants, which specialises in the finances of GPs, practices and primary care more generally. Lawrence has spent more than 30 years looking after GP practices of all sizes and their finances. He's also worked as an advisor to both the Department of Health and the BMA, authored books on GP practice finance and lectured in the UK and overseas on tax and finances in primary care. On top of all that, he's written advice and guidance on financial issues for GPs and practices for GP Online, our sister site GP Business, and our previous incarnation GP Magazine for many years. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Lawrence. Thank you very much for inviting me. So I suppose we should just start off with sort of a general picture about what things are like for practices at the minute. I mean, it's been a really difficult time for the last year and a half for like all businesses, really, with rising inflation and rising costs. How has that affected practices? I think the way practices are thinking at the moment is how they manage with the resources that they've got to balance up the needs of their own staff and their own needs, the needs of the partners because they have their own needs, and the needs of their patients. So you've got this sort of triangle of needs that are demanding uh, resources from the practice. The difficulty we've got is that there isn't sufficient resources being put into general practice. Have you noticed the particular areas where costs are kind of going up most for practices that's had a big impact on practices' finances? Well, like all households, like all businesses, uh, costs generally are going up. You know, inflation is, um, RPI is over 13%, CPI is over 10%. I've got a meeting with a client on Wednesday they have felt they can't give their staff a pay rise below 6%. They want some advice from me. And the implication is, what does that mean? And this is their their non-clinical staff, so perhaps their lower earning staff. The implication is, what does that mean in terms of the clinical provision they can afford in terms of having sessions provided by salaried GPs? You've also got a more extreme implication in that If the costs of running the practice are just too high, then there's the great risk the partners will just say, this isn't worth our, not exactly worth our time because that's giving the wrong kind of message. It actually, it doesn't generate sufficient income to give them their needs, which may not be excessive, but also to to look after your patients. And and a prime example of this is a practice of mine that has been historically underfunded in North London, two partners, really excellent practice. And with the latest kind of inflation and pressure on costs, and in the last year, they've actually been putting their own money back into the practice to keep it afloat, that they've actually returned the contract and just said, we just can't do it anymore. 
which is a tragedy, really. It's a tragedy for the local health economy, for the patients of this practice. And it's, you know, it's, it's a bitter pill for them to have to swallow that all the work and effort they put into this practice over the last 20 years has, has come to this. Are you seeing more practices handing back their contracts because of financial worries? I'm not seeing that much at the moment, but I am hearing people talk about it. Right. We benchmark our practices' earnings. When we meet them, we compare their earnings this year to last year and and to average. And there was a practice I met last year where they their earnings went down. Let me think about it. They must have gone down about a third. And actually, the partners are earning a little bit more than their salaried GPs. But we were left really with, well, let's just see how things go. But if you know, unless there is going to be some sort of change, and this is a really important point, where does the change come from? What is the change that's necessary? If there's not enough income in the contract to pay the GPs enough for running the practice, and we're not talking excessive sums here, the provision that gets cut is the provision for additional care for patients. It's the salary GPs and the locums costs that, that get cut. You can't cut the cost of running the infrastructure. So that's the cost that, that gets cut. And how do you think, obviously, the contract's been imposed again this year, the BMA not very happy about it. There's not really been any kind of uplift to finances to take account of inflation. How do you think the contracts this year is going to impact on practices finances? What's going to happen is that the practices are going to have to look at their own resources and see what they've got. You've got a non-inflationary increase in their funding. That's not going to meet their needs. It's not going to meet their costs. And practices will have to look carefully at what their costs are. They'll have to budget, which is something practices probably haven't had to do in the past, and decide how they want to spend the resources they've got. It's a really, really difficult balance to have to make. You touched on there about the fact that they might have to look at staff levels in terms of salary GPs and locums. Do you think many practices will have to quite seriously consider cutting back on the amount of clinical sessions they provide to patients? Yes, I think they will. And the other thing to mention is that the the costs of that extra clinical provision has gone up. I was talking to a practice just last week. They're in a not particularly attractive part of the UK. I'm sure you won't mind me saying that. But they're advertising salary GP roles at 13,500 a session, which is probably £2,000 or so more than you might expect. And they can't recruit. Now, a couple of years ago, that was £10,000 a session you might expect to pay for a salary GP. So we've got over 30% increase. That's not funded from anywhere. You've got this continued pressure on practices. It's difficulty recruiting salary GPs. The costs are going up of recruiting those GPs. You know, we come back to the same issue, really, that there's an inadequate provision for primary care to function properly. You talked about that practice earlier that is considering giving their non-clinical staff a 6% pay rise, but I've spoken to other GPs and practice managers and they've basically said they can't afford to give pay rises this year. What's the balance like that amongst your clients, do you think? Are most of them giving pay rises? Are a lot of them not giving pay rises? I think most will give pay rises. Right. I think probably 6% is high. I expect it'll be probably around 3 or 4%. So with all these cost pressures, is, is there anything practice can actually do at the minute to kind of grow their income? Or is it more they've just got to look at cost saving? Is that the only options they've got? 
Yeah, I mean, it's very difficult to generate new income. The um, new contract retains this prohibition from doing any non-HS or private work, private general practice in NHS premises. You're constrained by what is available to you. Now, some areas offer a lot more enhanced services than others. Some parts of the UK are particularly poor in offering these services. Others are, are far more generous. Most of our clients do most of the things that are available to them. So it really comes down to, back to what I said before about budgeting your way through until really we have a sensible approach about funding general practice. Because this kind of imposed contract, assuming that you can create capacity out of inadequate resources, is just foolhardy. We've mentioned primary care networks. Is there anything you can do at a primary care network level to help practices financially, to help them reduce costs, to help them sort of become more resilient financially? Is there any steps they could take at that sort of level? There is. They can provide additional resources out of their R's, their additional roles and their resources into into general practice. They've also got their own issues as well. You know, a lot of uh, PCNs are still evolving. You know, it's a relatively new concept. Some are incorporating, some are not incorporating, some are really finding their way. There may be some capacity issues, there may be some help that they can give in terms of funding, but I don't think that's something that we should look to rely on or we should think is appropriate, really, to sort out the problems with the current GP contract and the way it's funded. Is it just about the funding or do you think there's fundamental other issues with the way GPs are paid that needs to change? Or is it just that we just need more money going in? It's not really about the money. You might start me off here with my own kind of rant here. I think it comes down to fundamentally a lack of trust from the commissions right up to the department in how general practice works. There's this sort of belief that GPs are there to exploit the system rather than their priority being to look after their patients. And for those of us who've worked in this area a long time, we know that that's not right. The issues of GPs having to declare their pay, this isn't a reward that they're going to be getting if they if they earn above 156K. They're not going to get a gold medal or something. It, it's punitive in nature. It's this fundamental lack of trust, I think, that exists between the department and with the GPs. While that exists, it's hard to see how really general practice can go forward. GPs, in the main, they do their job to look after their patients. They earn an income they're entitled to. But if you don't put enough trust or resource into the system, then ultimately you damage the goodwill that exists in general practice. And for those of us who've done this long enough, we know that goodwill is an essential part of the service. And at the moment, I think that goodwill has been seriously damaged by a lack of respect, really, from the, from the department and the commissioners to the people who are running this at the front line. Those need to change almost first because it, general practice has turned into something that isn't kind of people aren't rushing to become partners. You know, they're not rushing to, to join partnerships, rushing to make change because you don't get a lot of thanks or gratitude from, uh, you might from the patients, but not from the, not from the commissioners and the, and the department that are supposed to be there to look after you. And also a lot more work and responsibility and stress, really, by being a partner. All of those things. 
You mentioned about the £156,000 um, declaration of income that comes into effect from from now, basically. So this is GPs who, um, or actually anyone who works in a practice who earn over £156,000 in, what year is it, 2021, 22? They're going to have to publicly declare their earnings. They will be effectively named in a, a national publication, according to the government. You obviously sound like you don't think this is a very good idea. I'm not sure anybody who's involved with GPs thinks it's a very good idea. How do you think it's going to impact on the profession? Do you think it's going to have a really bad effect? I think it's a terrible idea, personally. (laughs) Even if you say, okay, as a concept, it's appropriate. The guidance that's come out with this is fundamentally flawed. And we've been working with the BMA to show them illustrations, to explain why it's flawed. Uh, I know the BMA have spoken to the department and I know that the department are not interested in making any changes to, to the way that this is going to be determined. So, for instance, you mentioned that 21-22 is the first year this is relevant, which is true. But if you're a GP practice with the year ended 31st of March, then we're talking about the 31st of March 2022. If your year end is a, a month later... 30th of April, you're talking about the year ending 30th of April 2021, because it's based on your tax year, it's based on your pensionable earnings. So there's no consistency. And, you know, where we've been through COVID, there have been different income streams, different cost pressures put through. So we're not comparing like with like. The department has chosen a simple measure, which is superannual earnings, pensionable earnings as the measure to determine what your pay is, your declarable pay for this purpose. But that's not an appropriate measure for reasons that we could talk about if you're interested, some of which are technical, some of which are not. It's just another casual way to treat general practice to say, well, okay, yes, we want you to declare your earnings, but we're not prepared to think about this carefully enough. So we're just going to base it on your superannual earnings. Get on with it. Why is it not a good way of doing it? Because, for instance, some sources of income are pensionable and some are not. If you're a GP practice, uh, let's say you own your own surgery, you're getting notional rent and you're paying a mortgage to cover that. Some of that mortgage payment will be interest, some of it will be capital. The capital bit is not tax deductible. It doesn't come into the earnings for your pension. So if you're making a surplus on the notional rent, on which you're paying tax, by the way, then that surplus is added to your taxable earnings and it becomes part of your pensionable earnings and it becomes part of your declarable earnings. That same GP who might be renting their premises and there's rent coming in and rent coming out, so they've got the same, exactly the same take-home position, if you like, they'll have less income, less declarable income to have to pay. You might have a PCN that's a company, in which case any surplus that gets made gets left in the company. If your PCN is unincorporated, you as a practice and you as an individual have to declare your share of that PCN surplus as part of your earnings. It doesn't mean say you'll get the money. That money might still sit in the PCN. But you've got two GPs, one of which is in an incorporated PCN, one of which isn't, which will have different earnings. And we'll put them into a different earnings bracket for this declaration. And let's suppose you've got the GP I was talking to about before, who is advertising for a salary GP at 13,500 and can't recruit, and is working more than 10 sessions a week to meet that need. Well, he's going to be earning probably more than that 156k. 
but actually there's no measure between the effort that somebody is making and how hard they're working and this declaration. It's just arbitrary. If you choose to buy an electric car, Emma, then you'll get all your tax advantages up front because that's the way it works. So if you buy yourself a Tesla, you might find that you don't have to declare your earnings. But if you went and bought yourself something different, you might find that you do. There's numerous examples that I can give. It's just not thought through. We've talked a little bit about primary care networks. I mean, how are you seeing they are getting on in terms of the way the finances are working between practices and and PCNs? It seems to me that things are getting ever more complex. (laughs) I know it was already very complicated. Does it cause practices a lot of problems having so much of their funding now coming into a network? I think it depends on the network and how it's managed. Certainly, we've got some networks that work really well. We have others where there are disputes in the network. We have have been called into a particular network where there is a dispute around the allocation of monies. It's taken us, I think, over a year to actually get to a point where we're halfway through. We've got some acceptance as to where we are. We have practices leaving some PCNs and joining other PCNs because there's a difference in perhaps style a difference in ambition for those PCNs, which is why I say I think it's early days in terms of their evolution. I think the first big step for a lot of PCNs is deciding to shift from being this sort of group of practices working together into a formal entity, into a limited company. And I think that gives a lot of advantages, a lot of structure. It has its own built-in governance, has its own built-in taxation compliance, in terms of officers who have to be taxed properly, in terms of paying corporation tax, in terms of dealing with the surplus. But I still think these are early days. I suppose that the thing is as well, now we've got integrated care systems, they've come along and that's sort of like halfway through this idea of having primary care networks. So it's not really clear yet what integrated care systems are going to expect from their primary care networks. They're still kind of in flux and only just bedding down. And we've had a pandemic, so not an easy first five years for them to have really as new organisations. Yeah, exactly. We mentioned superannual income, but pensions have obviously been a massive problem for GPs. The tax issues are apparently now sorted out in the budget. Do you think that's going to solve a lot of the problems that GPs have faced in terms of the annual allowance and the lifetime allowance? I think it will help with the annual allowance. The particular problem with the annual allowance that I think caught everyone's attention was last year in 22-23 when we had this mismatch of the CPIs that grew the, the pension and discounted it. And a lot of GPs made decisions based on the fact that they were concerned that they were going to have an enormous growth figure. I'm hearing GPs now saying they want to go back into the scheme. GPs who have retired who are saying they want to to rejoin the scheme. I'm open-minded. The only issue I'm worried about that might sort of come back to for for the Chancellor to regret this is that there's a window opportunity now for GPs with large pensions to take their pension and not suffer a lifetime allowance charge. And we know that the Labour Party have said if they were to get back into power, they would reinstate a a lifetime allowance charge. It may well be an incentive for those GPs in their sort of mid-50s upwards to think about taking their pension now. Would that suggest to them that they could work fewer sessions having taken their pension? It might. They've secured an income. 
So I'm not sure that that might end up reducing the number of sessions that get worked rather than encouraging people to stay longer. See, as accountants, we expect chancellors to tinker with the system. We might hear that they've increased basic rate tax by 1% or so and, um, you know, gives something to write about, really. It doesn't really make a lot of difference. But to kind of abolish the lifetime allowance after its history... I spoke to another client last week who was absolutely furious because he took his pension last year and had a decent pension, so he paid a lifetime allowance charge. You know, had he waited, it's not like he would have saved, you know, £10 or £20 or even £1,000. It's tens of thousands of pounds he would have saved had he waited. So it's quite a radical thing to do. And the difficulty with making radical decisions is that it provides instability. We don't know now what's going to happen next. As you know, if we were confident we might have the same fiscal plan for the next 10 years, then that gives us a sense of, of confidence. One of the other problems around pensions, and I wondered if you know how widespread this is still, is obviously there's been loads of problems with primary care support England. I know GPs find them deeply frustrating to deal with. Lots of problems about getting up-to-date pension statements. And obviously that was a particular issue for GPs who were worried they might be breaching these sort of tax limits. Is it still a problem? And what kind of issues does it create for GPs if they can't get hold of their up-to-date pension statements? It is still a problem. I think the difficulties are... Firstly, in terms of getting some basic information about your pension, lots of our clients say they really struggle to get even the basic information out of their pension. Secondly, uh, the information that PCSE hold may appear to be incorrect or incomplete because they haven't updated the information that they've been given. So we commonly come across GPs who've said, I've resubmitted my certificate four or five times and it's not appearing on my statement. And the way that people deal with PCSE is that they, they contact them. Generally, it has to be referred as a complaint before it gets dealt with. And then you end up having sort of multiple accesses, multiple complaints in order to get things resolved. So that's one issue, is actually getting the information. And, but secondly, when you get the information, it's pretty opaque to understand you know, you might end up getting your total reward statement, which has got details of what your pension's likely to be. You know, how do you know it's complete? Is there anything that might be missing? So I was looking at a, with a GP, this particular GP, he's got one line on his total reward statement where he had no earnings. And this is going back to something like 2002. And actually, that's before the current regime where we had these annual certificates. So this would have been a time where NHS pensions would have generated these small little forms which confirmed what your superannual earnings were. So he's got a real headache to try and go back and find that. Is there anything GPs can do about this? Should they do like an annual check? Or do they just need to make sure they keep really good records of how much their earnings over time, or all time by the sounds of things, 2002 is ages ago? I think it's really helpful to regularly get your total reward statement. You you can do this annually, make sure that it's as updated as it could possibly be. Look at it. If you have a financial advisor, then your financial advisor would would certainly be able to look at it in detail. Most accountants are not financial advisors. I think some are. But all accountants can give you information based on what they've got in front of them. For our clients, if they send us their total reward statement, we'll explain what it means. We won't actually tell them necessarily what they should do. That's up to them. There's a lot of information that can be extracted from a total reward statement. 
And if there are a few years missing, then the accountant will have that information. They would have prepared the certificates that have then gone to, to PCSE. So you can put it together. There's one other thing I just wanted to ask you um, before we finish. I mean, there's been a lot of talk recently about the death of the partnership model and whether it's going to end up being phased out, whether it's something that will survive in maybe certain parts of the country. Obviously, as an accountant that's worked with partners and practices that are partnerships for years and years and years, I'm sure you've got a view on the sort of value for money that GP partnerships provide the NHS. And I was wondering if you could share any thoughts on that. Definitely. I feel very strongly about this. You don't hear accountants or solicitors or surveyors or other professional firms saying, we must find another model to work under because our the partnership model uh, is, is no longer appropriate. Partnerships are inherently flexible. The latest legislation that governs how partnerships work is 1890. It's simple. You can make them work exactly as, as you want. There is a modification, which is limited liability partnerships, and those are something that certainly might be helpful in getting new partners because their liability is limited. By nature, your liability in a general partnership is unlimited. But all the complaints I hear about the partnership model are diverting the issue. You'll hear commissioners saying the partnership model is dead. It can't deliver services. It's not the partnership model that can't deliver the services. The partnership model doesn't exist partnership model is simply the way people work together you know if people can't deliver services it's because the partnership has not been given the resources that it needs in order to fulfill its function and we had a, a secretary of state for health last year who wrote a forward in a document that was called at your service this is me being provocative here welcoming the report that talked about partnership model is in terminal decline talked about buying back GP premises, using £9 billion of taxpayers' money to do that. What would a young GP future partner think about investing their future life and their time and their money in practice when you've got a Secretary of State who's suggesting that actually the model they're going to be investing in is dead? There's nothing wrong with the partnership model. It works perfectly well, but it has to be respected it has to be trusted and it has to be properly supported. And that's not just financially, it's in every sense that you can think of. I'm a huge fan of the partnership model. It does deliver. It's too often used as an excuse for the failings of the commissioners and the department for why general practice isn't working. It's on them, not on the partnership model. Do you think we might reach a point where we'll see a, a sort of a mixed way of working with different parts of the country doing different things? We might do. I mean, I've seen super practices come. I've seen super practices in dreadful disputes. There's room in primary care for more than one model. Let me just say that. But as a flexible, dynamic model, if you accept that GPs, their prime interest is the welfare of their patients, not to make money. If you accept that, you accept the partnership model gives them the flexibility to work in pretty much whichever way they want to. It's far more flexible than, say, a limited company, far more flexible, far more flexible than being salaried, then it's something that should be protected and it should be encouraged and it should be valued, not treated as the excuse for why patients can't get their appointments. The reason patients can't get their appointments is because we don't have enough GPs, isn't it, really, at the end of the day? And it doesn't matter whether they're in partnership, they're salaried. Exactly. <laughs> if they don't exist, they can't, they can't help. 
I did hear that it would take two terms for um, government to make changes. And I think if they're not careful, then general practice could fall much faster than that. If you make an announcement that the partnership model, the independent contractor status is dead, no one's going to go into that. And you'll have people who are leaving it who can't replace it. it. It's a house of cards. It'll fall down. I think there has to be a change really at the top. I can't see it at the moment, but it's about fundamentally about trust and respect. And that's what's missing. All right. Well, thank you so much, Lawrence. Thanks for that. You're very welcome. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. And thanks so much to Lawrence for taking the time to talk with me. I'm back next week with Nick and Ellie for our regular news review. So please do join me then. In the meantime, don't forget, you can get all the latest news from Primary Care and access a host of other resources on our website at gponline.com. 